Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mikey, if I haven't met you yet. It's a joy to be with you this morning on this beautiful, hot, sunny day, hey? Rebecca brought some water down if any of you are parched and need a drink, just so none of us pass out in this hot day. So I told someone this morning with how hot it was, maybe they'll get a quicker sermon, but no promises yet. (laughs) Well, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews together as a church And one of the things that Hebrews has been talking about is Jesus is the greatest. Amen? Call him the goat, the greatest of all time. We've been looking at Hebrews, which shows a lot of different facets of how Jesus is the greatest. And today what we're going to look at this morning is the theme that Jesus gives the greatest forgiveness. That Jesus gives the greatest forgiveness. Now let me ask you a question. How do you forgive someone who has deeply wronged you? How do you forgive someone who has deeply wronged you? Has anyone been hurt by someone or wronged against or sinned against? Anyone? And is that process of forgiveness not incredibly difficult? It's it's a pretty difficult question, first of all, to answer, but it's even more difficult to actually act out, isn't it? To actually forgive someone. Now... Have you ever hurt someone? Any confession time, have you ever hurt someone? Now, a question is, have, have you ever hurt someone and they have not forgiven you? Anyone deal with that? I, I know there's people out there who haven't talked to family members or friends for years because of unforgiveness. And it, it's pretty difficult to be in the presence of someone who will not forget or forgive you, isn't it? I mean, think of family holidays. If you've had a time where you had conflict with a family member, and when you get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas and you're sort of forced together for the holidays, it's sort of an awkward experience, isn't it? You know they hate your guts, or you know they're mad at you, but you're sort of just with them. Is it, is it tough to enjoy their presence at that time? Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and I, I want to bring this to our attention because... I believe one of the reasons that we struggle to enjoy the presence of God is because we as humans, and we as especially even those who know Jesus, do not fully understand the depths of His forgiveness. And in the same way where we find it difficult to be in the presence of someone who has not forgiven us, I think that a, a not a full understanding of God's forgiveness actually hinders our enjoyment of the presence of God. And so I want, I want to talk about this passage of Hebrews this morning because we're going to look at an even deeper question, just unforgiveness among humans. Because an even greater question is, how does a perfect holy God forgive humans who have wronged and sinned against him Constantly. How does that happen? And I believe if we sin and when we sin and sin against God, is it not difficult for us to enjoy his presence? And some of the reasons I think it's difficult is because all we can think about is how we failed God. Or maybe we're overcome with guilt or we're overcome with shame and we're wondering what God thinks about us because of what we've done. And I believe one of the reasons you and I struggle to enjoy God is because we live in constant fear that God doesn't actually enjoy us. 
Now, is that true? No. God deeply enjoys us and deeply longs for relationship with us. And we experience this fear and we experience this hindrance of enjoying his presence because we don't understand and we don't ourselves enjoy the fact that God has forgiven all our sins. Amen, church? And the passage we're going to look at today is such a beautiful description of the greatness of God's forgiveness for us. And so let's look at it. If you have your Bibles or even on your phone Bible app, perhaps you can turn, turn to Hebrews 10. And we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of Hebrews. Now, some of it's repeat, but let's walk through it together. And so Hebrews chapter 10, it starts like this. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what's he talking about? He's talking about everything we discussed last week, that Jesus is the greatest what? Jesus is the greatest sacrifice, right? We talked about the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he says, think about it, people. Do you really think that the shedding of blood of animals can actually restore your relationship with God? And his answer is, of course not. He said the sacrificial system cannot do that, and that's not even why God set up the sacrificial system. They said all those things in the Old Testament, all the rituals, all the patterns of sacrifice, all those things were simply shadows to point to something greater. All those things were a shadow that pointed to a better reality in Jesus. It was a shadow to point to God's greater plan. Now, now think about a shadow for a minute. If I am facing the sun right now, where is my shadow formed? Behind me, right? Now, if you were to look at my shadow that's formed, and I'm trying to turn around and find it, but it's hard to see. If you were to look at my shadow, and you begin to talk to my shadow and interact to my shadow as if it were me, would that be a little ludicrous? Of course, because the shadow isn't me. The shadow isn't fully who I am. The shadow is not Micah. In fact, it's even indistinguishable from me. You see, the shadow behind me isn't the same thing as me. But it's also not completely unrelated to me, is it? Because it still has a shadow behind it. And it's a little wider of a form than I would hope, but it still nonetheless represents me, right? And it reflects something about me. It reflects the shape of my body, it reflects the shape of my face. It wouldn't be a shadow of me if I had not been standing there in the first place. And so the writers of Hebrew is saying, it's the very same concept of the whole understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
This is how the Old Testament practices come to fruition and fulfillment of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is a shadow, in other words, and it's cast backwards upon all the ceremonial and sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. And what's beautiful as well is all these laws from the Old Testament actually point to Jesus, the reality. And so the main point here is that the shadow of all these Old Testament laws and rituals and sacrifice are inadequate and incomplete because it doesn't point to the true thing, the true sacrifice, which is Jesus. And so the writer says that all, all these shadows did was remind people year after year that they're sinners, that they've fallen short of God's purposes for their life. They've fallen short of the humans that they were created to be. They make mistakes over and over again. And he's saying, since the people had to sacrifice the blood of animals over and over again, it shows that sin was actually never fully dealt with. All sacrifice did was could remind them over and over again that their sin remains and God had to cover their sins. Now, we're in gardening season right now. Who is weeding like crazy right now? Anyone? There's just weeds everywhere. And it's pretty entertaining because uh, Alethe usually helps in the garden. And the other day, her and I were weeding the garden together. And of course, when a kid is weeding the garden, what's their thought? What do they want to do? They just, well, of course, they always want to play. But when she's weeding, what does she do? She just grabs the weeds and starts yanking it, right? And really, she just rips the top off. But what's the problem when all you do is rip the top off a weed? The root's still there, and it keeps growing back over and over again. And so if all you do when you're weeding is rip the top off, you're never actually going to solve the weed problem, are you? They're going to continually come over and over and over again. And the fact that the weed continues to grow show that the weed was never fully dealt with. And this is the concept that is being brought out in Hebrews is that throughout the Old Testament story of what was happening, sin was never fully dealt with. Yet, what we're going to read as we continue to go is that God's forgiveness is so great because in Christ, sin is fully and finally and completely dealt with. Amen, church? That's the beauty of who Jesus is. And so what we're going to see is the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so let's keep reading. Verses 5 to 9. Here we hear Christ quoting Psalm 40. And so it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In other words... God didn't care about the sacrifices because they didn't ultimately accomplish anything. They were just a covering. But he says, but a body you have prepared for me. What's that a reference to? When Jesus comes in human flesh. Then it says, in burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, 
Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So what do we see here? We see a quote here from Psalm 40, a Psalm of David. And really what the author of Hebrews is doing is inviting us into a conversation between the triune God, between the Father and the Son. And we're brought into this conversation where, where Christ is essentially saying to the Father, he says, we, we know that these Old Testament sacrifices have accomplished nothing. So you have prepared a body for me. You have prepared me to be a sacrifice in and of myself. And so we realize that God was never pleased with the sacrifices, but he established them as these lessons to instruct their people about the sinfulness of their hearts. He wanted to instruct them about his hatred of sin. He wanted them to instruct them in the fact that sin leads to death and to injustice and to evil. He wanted to show them their need of atonement and their need to be cleansed to enjoy his presence. But there was nothing appealing to God about the sight of a dying animal. God had no pleasure in the moans and the death of a lamb or a bull. In fact, actually throughout the entire Old Testament story, we hear the same message on repeat, that bloody sacrificial animals were never God's true desire. They were never his desire. They were a sign of the problem, not the solution. God desired obedience. And so let me, let me read some Old Testament passages over you guys just to get a glimpse of this, just to hear God's character and his essence and what he desires. So this first one's from Jeremiah 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. So what does God desire? He doesn't care about sacrifices. He wants what? He wants obedience. Listen to Isaiah 1. He said, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. You know what vain means? Meaningless. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. <coughs> Sorry, I need a drink there. Let me give you one more. My favorite prophet. Any guesses what my favorite prophet is? Micah. Micah, yeah. <laughs> Micah 6, 6, 8. says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, or the sin of my soul? What's he saying there? He's saying the sacrificial systems do not accomplish anything. Verse 8, he has told you, and some of you guys may know this passage, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Does anyone know? But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So it's this concept that God ultimately desires obedience. Now, here's the problem we face out of this. Humans face another massive issue in being restored in relationship to God because have any of us acted in full obedience to God? Anyone here? None of us. And, and we call this, not only do we have sins in our lives of doing what we shouldn't, but we also have sins of our lives of not doing what we should. And we call those sins of commission, sins that we do, and we call them sins of omission. Sins of things that we should do that we don't. And what's beautiful about Jesus' forgiveness here, and this is why he brings this up in the passage, is that Jesus offers forgiveness in both forms and fashion. Jesus not only offers us forgiveness for the things that we do do that we shouldn't, but he also offers us forgiveness for the things that we don't do that we should. And so here's the beautiful good news is Jesus comes to deal and forgive not just the absence of sin, but he gives this total positive obedience in everything he did. And he becomes a perfect offering for sin and a living sacrifice because he was not only righteous, but he was obedient. And Philippians 2 tells us that he was obedient even to what? Obedient even to death. Death on a cross. And so Jesus does what God desired from every worshiper of the old covenant. God did not want animal sacrifices. What he wanted and still wants is obedience. And that's why Jesus is his perfect true sacrifice. Now, this next section of Scripture, the verses 10 to 18, tells us then what Christ accomplishes for us as this perfect sacrifice. So verse 10 says this. says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen? That means there's no need for sacrifice anymore. Jesus Christ has done it once for all. And every priest stands at his daily service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. That's key. He sat down, which means he rested, which means it was completed. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. Quoting from Jeremiah, it says, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Amen, church? Amen. It's the greatest news we could ever hear. And verse 18, the climax. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so the beautiful news is that because of Christ's sacrifice, forgiveness and sanctification is possible to restore our relationship with God. And so even in our sins of commission or omission, God changes our identity and he transforms us through the cross by the power of the Spirit. And when we sin against God by what we do, guess what we get from God? We get forgiveness. And when we sin against God by what we don't do, guess what we get from God? We get forgiveness. And in his forgiveness, he sanctifies us, meaning he sets us free, not only from the condemnation of sin, but also from the control that sin has over our lives. Again, Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, and by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this concept of sanctified means that we're made holy again. We're made perfected and completed and righteous in the eyes of God. Which means that something happens to us through faith in Jesus that changes our complete identity and life. We have been perfected. It is accomplished. It is finished. It is complete. Now this doesn't make, mean we're never going to make sin again or mistakes again. Not until we die and we're in the full presence of God. But as we are sanctified, we are made right. And the perfection, the sanctification talked about here is all about the complete and full forgiveness of sins. If you place your trace of trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are perfect in the sense that God has forgiven all your sins and declared you righteous in his sight and thus qualified you for acceptance in his presence. And that will never change. Amen. And so the beautiful thing is, when we go through those seasons where, where we have such a fear of being in the presence of God because of our sin, and maybe guilt will overwhelm you, and maybe shame will overwhelm you, or maybe you'll be questioning, how does God view me? What does he think about me? When we place our trust in the sacrifice that Jesus has made, there is only one perspective that God has for us, and there's nothing we can do to change it, and that is that we are sanctified and we are forgiven in Christ. Amen? That is the beautiful thing, which means that we can come into the presence of God with boldness and confidence, standing before him, understanding that when he looks on us, he doesn't hold our sin against us, past, present, or future. He doesn't count our sin against us. He doesn't domineer and ridicule and condemn us, but he forgives us and restores us. And it's completed because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so the, the challenge we have then in following Jesus 
is that really we would live out of this identity. We don't have to earn this identity. We don't have to prove ourselves before God. We don't have to work to make ourselves acceptable before God. That has been done in Christ, but now we get to live out of that identity. We get to live out of the implication that Jesus has restored us and forgiven us. And so Jesus then makes us not a slave to sin, but forgives us and frees us to righteousness. And so I just want to ask you a, a closing question. I just want you to ponder and examine what your life could be if you woke up every morning, if you lived each moment of each day, if you went to bed, knowing that in Christ, God has completely forgiven you. Whatever your sins of the past, Whatever your sins of the morning, whatever your sins of the afternoon, whatever your sins of the night, your identity still remains intact because of what Christ has accomplished. And as you live out of that identity and as you enjoy the presence of God even more so, and as you realize that sin no longer has condemnation over you, you begin to experience the freedom. The freedom that not only does sin not control you, but shame and guilt does not control you. And so just picture each day when God looks at you and he thinks about you and he hears your prayers, he refuses to remember your sins any longer. That's good news, amen? And he refuses to remember not because there aren't any, not because you've been good this week. None of us have been good this week. But solely because Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice in your place once and for all. And I truly believe that the deeper we understand the forgiveness of God, and the deeper we understand how God has restored and reconciled the relationship with us, that it would truly transform our enjoyment of the presence of God and transform us even more so into the people that we have been called to be. Let me pray to that extent. Please bow with me. Gracious Father, we come before you. Lord, first of all, with deep hearts of gratitude that we can even acknowledge your presence among us and that we can enjoy your presence among us, not because of anything we have done to earn or deserve your favor or your love, but simply of what you have done for us. That Jesus has come as an atoning sacrifice to restore our relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we experience the forgiveness that you have for us, and that as we realize what it's like to live a life with no condemnation, that we in turn would be transformed to be a people of forgiveness. A people who have been deeply forgiven so that we can deeply forgive others. And Lord, I pray that as we experience a God who gives us no condemnation, Lord, that we would be a people who do not bring condemnation to others, but that we would love and restore them. 
Lord, we know that this only comes from finding our identity in you and understanding how you view us. And I pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to live that identity out. We thank you, Jesus, that you make this possible and you alone once and for all on the cross. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.